Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mandel, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel. What's going on? Not much. What are we talking about today? I thought today might be a good uh, time to talk a little bit about some some of my history here with uh, with how I've come to decide what's true and what's not true in relation to um, anything I'm learning. Um, you and I have known each other for a while now, and I've been on the we've been doing the podcast for over five years. And the thing is, I've been considering AAC and living in this space and, and, and working with people with disabilities for over 25 years now, right? And some of the stuff that I learned in my early years turned out not to be true. Um, I, a, a huge culprit, for instance, is uh, learning styles. Um, I'm going to send a uh, Luke, our podcast producer, some links or at least one link to add to the show notes here. So if you wanted to go to the show notes of this episode, you can see some research around the concept of learning styles. Uh, I had learned that learning styles were a thing, you know, like that uh, people have um, an auditory learning style, like you're born with an auditory learning style, you're born with a, um, a prevalence for, for text uh, or you you might remember things better if you're presented in a text version versus versus an auditory version, and I bet you there are people listening right now going, well, yeah, Chris, I heard I learned about learning styles too, right? And as research developed and as um, people dove into what learning styles were, the research spoiler alert came out that that's not really a thing. That that certainly there might be situations where people learn better because they're for, for instance a, a perfect example is i'm in a car a lot driving from school to school so i do a lot of learning through my auditory sense by listening to podcasts and listening to stuff in the car right so i probably have more practice at learning stuff through an through an auditory channel than somebody who's not in the car as much or not listening as much but the point of the matter is is that the research came, that's come out is we all learn through all of our senses, which is not what I originally learned. Right? I learned that that you have learning styles and you might be better at auditory. You might be better at text. You might be better in a certain way, which is not a thing. And when I learned that, I remember feeling like, whoa, um, it took me a second to first process that I had learned something the wrong way. And then second, accept that I had learned it the wrong way because my, my, my initial gut reaction when I was, was cognitive dissonance, right? Like, no, wait, I learned learning styles was a thing. You can't tell me it's not a thing. And I wanted to fight against it, you know? Um, I, I stopped doing that and I recognized that, no, uh, learning is growth and you may have learned something wrong um, and you can grow and change and don't necessarily uh, stick to that feeling of cognitive dissonance, real against it. I guess what I'm getting to there is that in my 25 years of experience, I've been burned by things that turned out not to be true. So I have developed some sort of shield, defense mechanism, skepticism maybe around any sort of new concept or concept that's new to me. It's probably the better way to put that because it might not necessarily be a new concept, but it might be new to me where I want to have a healthy level of skepticism 
while balancing keeping an open mind to that I might be experiencing cognitive dissonance because of that skepticism. Does that make sense, the balance that I'm that I'm trying to strike? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's lots of opportunities in our life and also our professional work where we are challenged with the beliefs that we have and what we have always known feels comfortable and familiar. And so that's where we stay. And, you know, in order to really be evolving as people, as professionals, um, you know, in any sense of the word, we have to be open to new ideas. We have to be open to the challenge of something new or something that we didn't know about or hear about. Um, and also kind of, you know, make sure we're looking through a critical lens, you know, and in making the decisions about, you know, what we're going to believe and how we're going to let that shape what we do. I've certainly been in situations where I was trying to present a new idea or again, an idea that's new to somebody else. And that cognitive dissonance was so strong. They couldn't hear it. They couldn't see it. They wouldn't embrace it. I feel like you and I um, experienced that a little bit with pecs when we talk about pecs. You know, a lot of people are like, but I learned that first. And for some kids, I thought that I thought it, I saw it work, you know, but I'm not sure. And so without going on a whole pecs tirade, that's the sort of feeling that I get um, or that I don't want to be that person that reels against it. Like, well, this is how I learned it. And so therefore it has to be true, you know? So what I ended up having to do for myself is come up with some sort of set of questions that I asked myself to say, well, how do I know if what I'm learning is valid and true or not? Like what, what's some evidence I can use? And in fact, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but this is also how you and I start our presentations when we do our full day presentations. There is this triangle of questions, these three questions that we ask um, that I need a, I need an affirmative answer to all three of these questions before I'm going to say yes that's a thing. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to believe that. Right. Is that sound right? Yeah. I mean, we do start our, our full day course with this notion, um, just because, you know, there's a lot of information that's shared and especially now with, you know, the internet being so pervasive and we're all, you know, being inundated with lots of information every day. Um, so how do we decide what we kind of subscribe to and what, we do with that information. Um, so yes, the evidence-based triangle, um, from ASHA, the American speech and hearing association, um, pretty clearly defines. Yeah. What's, what is the definition of evidence-based practice? It's affirmative answers to these, these three questions. The first question is what's the research or science saying? Again, nothing new. If you've listened to this podcast, you knew we were going to say that. Uh, second is what are professionals in the field saying? So got to be a check mark for for people if, if professionals saying this is a, a true and valid thing but the, the the third and I might argue the most important is well what are people who this strategy this 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 idea is meant to benefit what are they saying does, does it work for them and it's got to be a check mark not in just two of those not just one of those it's got to be a check mark an affirmative answer for all three of those for me to really adopt it as a, then this is it. You know, this is a thing that I can, I can support. Feeling this burden of the podcast uh, responsibility on the podcast, we should share it as a valid thing on the podcast. Uh, doing feeling responsibility when we pre present together or present separately, or when we do courses or whatever, write books. You know, I can, I know, I feel confident in sharing this because it's checked off these three boxes. Is that again fair? 
Yeah. And I think that, I think the challenge is sometimes, you know, we don't, the challenge with our field is that we don't have enough research in certain areas. Like we don't always have, you know, a consensus of professionals, right? We have kind of differing opinions. Um, and then, you know, I think now more than ever, we have access to, uh, the actual clients themselves, um, just because of people sharing so openly, I think on social media and other platforms like blogs and, and things like that. Um, so I think one of the challenges is like, how do we, collect the information so that we can, you know, assess. Um, cause I do think that there are some, like, there's some challenges with like, wow. I, I mean, I think you and I could both say like list five things off the top of our head. We wish there was more research on. Right. Um, and I think that that's sometimes the challenge with new ideas is that, you know, it's, new ideas to us is that how do we collect all that information? Like how do we figure out the answer to some of those questions in like our everyday practice? Agreed to all of that. And it's still spending time to try and get an affirmative answer for each one of those check marks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And so I think that maybe leads us into this interview today. Um, Because what I want to prep people for what they're about to hear is um, you're going to hear me specifically wrestle with the cognitive dissonance, right? You're going to hear me trying to come up with um, and and ferret out answers to the people that were that we interviewed today um, to these three questions, right? Like, okay, tell me more because I'm really wrestling with some cognitive dissonance here about what I thought I knew and what you're telling me you believe to be true. So what's your evidence to back up these statements that you're saying? Because I want to believe it too. I want to um, get on board if it checks off all three of these check marks, which I think is pretty fair, right? Yeah, and I think that it's always hard to kind of step outside of ourselves and kind of peer down and think like, oh, like, is this a moment of cognitive dissonance, right? Like to have that self-awareness, I think is a skill that has to develop over time because so often we're just kind of like, we have a thought, we have a belief and that is our truth, right? And so I think that a skill that I've definitely been practicing in my, you know, adult life is how can I zoom out for a second, pause and start to develop the self-awareness to be curious with myself. Like what's going on here? Like, are you being open? You know, are you, you know, having that level of awareness to actually like judge the situation fairly? Um, so I think it's, it's great that we're kind of talking about this on the podcast, Chris, and I commend you for kind of having that awareness to recognize like this is exactly what was going on for me. Well, those questions that you just sort of mentioned for yourself and that the, that's the sort of person you want to be, get ready, everybody, because you're about to hear me do it in front of thousands of people. <laughs> that's what this episode is. <laughs> it's me wrestling with this, um, with you kind of coaching it along, you know what I mean? And um, and listening to our, our guests uh, in a, in a way that, um, I, I hope models this, this level of professionalism of, of like, this is a very prof- professionals trying to get to what is the truth of the matter. Right. Um, and so I think without further ado, we can introduce who our, our guests are today. Yeah, we had the pleasure of interviewing Marge Blanc and Alexandria Zakos. Um, Alexandria has been on the podcast before, um, but we were so delighted to have Marge Blanc come on. Uh, we're talking all about Gestalt language processing, and we had such a rich conversation that we actually had to break the episode into two parts. So this is part one of our interview with Marge Blanc and Alexandria Zakos.
We'd like to thank all of the wonderful Patreon supporters who make this show possible. This podcast is funded by listeners just like you who've signed up at patreon.com backslash talking with tech to show their support. Because of the generosity of our amazing Patreon community, we're able to pay Luke and Michaela, our podcast producer and audio engineer, who keep the show looking and sounding great. Patreon supporters also receive bonus content, such as early access to interviews, behind-the-scenes recordings, additional curated resources and materials, and so much more. Check it out at patreon.com backslash talking with tech. Now let's head back into the episode. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined with Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey there, Rachel. I am super excited to have Marge Blanc and Alexandria Zakos on today. You guys, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today about Gestalt Language Processing. Thanks for having us. You are so welcome. Amazing. So before we dive in, can you guys just briefly introduce yourself, who you are and what you do? So once upon a time, um, I had never met an autistic child. And then I did, and everything changed. And it was 1993, 94, and I was a clinical instructor, like an um, associate clinical professor, now it's called, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I had just been handed a wonderful handout from a uh, podcast, and that wasn't a I, did they have podcasts back then? I don't know. Anyway, it was a present. No, <laughs> it was a presentation that Amy Weatherby had done, and it was with Barry Prasant's original research. And so it, it was still being taught in those days. So this is now mid 90s, even up till 2000, all of that gestalt um, processing and gestalt language development uh, material was available. Now we didn't, obviously we didn't have the ready availability, you know, that we do now with social media, et cetera. This is my introduction, sorry. And, um, but on the other hand, I didn't know that, you know, I thought everybody knew this. I really thought so. And so I thought, well, thank you, Barry Prasant. That's really great of you to have figured this out. And so I went in to meet my very first uh, little one um, who was an autistic little boy at three years old, had some media, compre not comprehension, but introduction. And his mother said to me, you know, he's going to be quoting from these movies because he loves these movies. I thought, oh, exactly. I know what to do. So my um, my graduate students and I, you know, recorded him every session. We did the four stages that Barry Prezant had figured out all the way back then. And it was just like magic. I thought, wow, this is easy. And um, so then I found out that people were not doing what Barry Prezant had asked us all to do. Of course, you guys weren't there then, but um, he had asked us to collect the data and to look at it longitudinally and see how do kids get from stage two to stage three. And as you know from Alexandria, that's not always the easiest, easiest place to be in this process. But anyway, Dr. Prezant had asked us all to collect longitudinal data. So I thought, well, I've got some of that. And I just continued. And the thing was, um, and my introduction is almost over, um, that it varies from child to child. It's so different. And I thought, oh, Barry Prezant, you are a genius for figuring out that there are four stages. Now we know there are six 
because grammar doesn't all happen, you know, in one fell swoop. But that's another story when um, Alex tells us kind of the overview of the stages. But that's how it started. That's who I am. And I just continued. And I began a, um, a clinic after that. Uh, the university position was just a very short three-year stint. And then I started a clinic that was all physically supportive. I had lots and lots of students. It was right next to campus. We collected data, you know, every day because I thought that's what you do, right? And so these patterns started to emerge and I could start to see, you know, how kids did it. I mean, kids are amazing. It's totally amazing how that works. But anyway, so after 10, 15 years of collecting data, then I did put it all together in the book that you know about. And that's the end of my introduction. Before we hop over to Alexandria, um, for people who aren't familiar with your book, Marge, can you tell us the title of the book? I can indeed. And it's about to be revised with better, more modern language. The language is antiquated and all of my old articles are of the same ilk. But the name of the book as it exists today is... Um, Natural Language Acquisition on the Autism Spectrum, The Journey from Echolalia to Self-Generated Language. And it was published in uh, 2012. So at that time, of course, I didn't know that I was using language that really had become, you know, by now, rather offensive. So it will be revised and there will be an ebook version with some updates of language. Amazing. Yeah. I think that we're all learning a lot from the autistic community um, about the kinds of language that we should be, be using. Um, so I think we're all kind of in the same boat there. I'm super excited that you're re releasing a new version. Uh, Alexandria, go ahead and introduce yourself. You've already been on the podcast. So for you guys who, you know, haven't listened to Alexandria's episode, um, definitely go back and listen to that. We'll link to it in the show notes, but Alex, go ahead and introduce yourself for people who are like listening for the first time. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Um, so my name is Alexandria Zakos. I am a speech language pathologist, um, and I reside just outside of Chicago. I have a um, clinic that um, is in a couple suburbs outside of Chicagoland, and I came across Gestalt language processing in 2016. So at that point, Marge's book had been out for four years, but I hadn't heard of it. And um, I was getting a lot of calls at my clinic from um, parents that felt like their child was having difficulty socializing. So it was a lot of calls about wanting to work on quote unquote social skills. Um, but a lot of these kids actually, um, they came in and I said, well, the issue here is delayed echolalia. But I had been taught in graduate school to ignore it or redirect it or tell them no movie talk. Um, yep, that's what I was told to say. And I knew in my heart that, you know, that wasn't working and that something deeper was going on here, but I was clueless. I had no idea what to do. And all of the speech pathologists around me that I tried to collaborate with had no idea. And so I was poking around in some different Facebook groups. And I, um, I think the one where I found Marge's book was called SLPs in private practice or something like that. And someone had recommended it to me. And so I purchased it and 
read the thing in a week and then my entire life changed. I contacted Marge. She has mentored me since then. Um, and around 2020, I decided to, you know, take it a step further. I was honestly getting frustrated with just the lack of knowledge with the speech pathologists around me. Um, I, at that point, felt more confident in what I was doing and following the natural language acquisition framework, but nobody else did. <laughs> and so I was generating these reports and talking to SLPs and school districts, and they were like, what are you talking about? So I said, okay, I need to ed start educating people in a bigger way. And um, my Instagram account was born, um, and I am old, old. I did not know about Instagram. I had to get one of my millennial SLPs in my clinic to teach me. And I am so glad she did because I think social media has really helped us spread the word about this. And I was able to start MeaningfulSpeech.com and we can talk about all of that later, but um, that's, that's basically my story. Amazing. So let's just dive in for people who are like, what is Gestalt language processing? They've been talking about it, but I have no idea what she's talking about. Um, can you just give us an overview of what Gestalt language processing is? Sure. So Gestalt language processing is language development. It is the other way of developing language that most speech pathologists, parents, and professionals have not heard of. And I'm going to let Marge dive into why that is in a little bit here. Um, but it is a natural, normal way to develop language. Kids that develop language this way are not following the pathway of analytic language development, which is basically typical development or what we're taught is typical development in graduate school. So what do I mean by that? A baby starts by babbling, and then we hear first words, and then we hear two-word combinations, phrases, sentences, and then we start to hear, you know, that beginning grammar and adult-like conversation. So that is what we're all taught that we have to get kids to do, right? Okay, they don't have words, we have to give them words. Or um, they're not combining words, okay, we need to work on that. Now, a Gestalt language processor has the same um, final destination, which is that um, flexible original language that an analytic processor arrives at at the end of their developmental journey but the path to getting there is very different. And Marge outlines it through her natural language acquisition framework, um, which she wrote about in her book. Um, and she expanded Dr. Berry Present's stages to include two more grammar stages. But he is the one that she mentioned earlier in her intro that um, wrote about the four stage, the main four stages. And those are stage one, delayed echolalia. So we are hearing um, a gestalt from a child. So what is a gestalt in stage one? It is um, an intonationally defined string of language that can be long or short. It can be intelligible or unintelligible to us. And it is often tied to an emotional, meaningful, or dramatic experience for the child. Um, and so we can hear anything anywhere from media to movie lines to something mom said a month ago. 
Um, this is all part of stage one, a gestalt. And then in stage two, Alexandra, what- can I, can I stop you there? Cause yeah. I feel like we need, might need to dig into each of these stages just a little bit to kind of clarify them a little bit. So Absolutely. let me try and summarize what I heard you say, and then tell me if I get something wrong. Okay. Yeah. So you have a baby that's babbling and they, I think what I heard you say is that the baby then eventually starts to put uh, some concepts together that these sounds that I'm making into words, right? Mm-hmm. So um, maybe another way of saying that it would be these sounds, I started uh, putting meaning to the sound. Does that, does that sound right? Um, what happens next? They then continue to put more sounds together, but some sounds might have shared meaning. So an example might be like, Baba, Baba, Mom, Dad, everybody around starts assigning meaning to Baba. You mean bottle, 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 and you're saying you want this bottle? And then that kid might go, Baba, 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 and they might continue to refine those sounds to make the word bottle. Is that fair? And you're talking about analytic processors, right, Chris? Well, I guess I'm trying to dis- uh, distinguish. So what would happen if you were a Gestalt language processor, you're still taking in sounds. How well, is it different? Sound. And we will we'll define that a little bit more specifically because the early research from Ann Peters, and I don't know if you've read her units of language acquisition, but it is, you know, to use Barry Prezant's word, it is seminal. And she really defined for all of us what a gestalt is. And one time I said to Barry Present, do we have to use that word? Nobody knows what a gestalt is. It's kind of a weird word. Can we just say script? And he said, no, it is our heritage. It is our heritage. And so from Ann Peters, what she has said, and her book has been um, reprinted, uh, uh, republished, and she is a linguist who is living in Hawaii right now and is part of our Facebook group and chimes in periodically. But at any rate, um, how, how she really pulled together the qualitative research from that whole two decade era, my goodness, you know, all the sixties and seventies going into the eighties when our forebears, so to speak, were carrying around their tape recorders and taping their kids and, you know, um, hearing what they do at night as they take the sound stream that they heard during the day and doing things with it, mitigating it, we would call it. Um, But anyway, what she realized is that what you're describing as that unit, a word, is only a unit to an individual who's an analytic processor. And it's partly that referential thing that adults do and they point to the ball and they say ball and the child, the analytic processor says, and we think they're genius because they just said ball, you know, in this way that, that, you know, we know what they said, right? Because we said it first, but the gestalt processor is listening to this sound stream and not referentially listening to ball because they're not referential yet. And Alex, if we give her the floor back, will tell us when that happens for a Gestalt language processor. But for a Gestalt processor, just to finish the stage one comment, you know, what Ann Peters taught us is that Gestalt processor is listening to one unit that is a whole. And the way a Gestalt is defined is an unanalyzed 
It's a unit. So would it be more than a string of one sound? There's a string of multiple sounds that analytical processor, the way you're putting it, might as assign their own meaning to a long string of sounds that is not referential. That, you mean an Excel processor? Yes. Okay. What they assign, the meaning that they assign to it, and we've learned a lot about this from Barry Present and all of the amazing autistic adults who have informed us. I mean, Rachel Dorsey among those, you know, is that that whole chunk, that whole string of sound is really like the soundtrack of an experience. And so the experience is really the important thing. And going back to Barry Prasant again, that is an episode. So this is episodic memory as opposed to semantic memory, referential memory. And so that whole episode comes with a soundtrack, like, let's get out of here. You know, yeah. let's get out of here was one of my very first autistic kiddos comment. But of course, it's not clear because like you say, and then I agree with you there, Chris, is that that segmentation has not happened. And I was listening to you talk about, you know, the morphemes and no, do, do Gestalt processors get down to the morpheme eventually? Absolutely. But at the one unit stage, and that's what we learned from Ann Peters at stage one, no, it's the whole episode. Could be one word. It could be like, wow, or look at that. But whatever it is that we would call a word, because we are very good analytic processors, the four of us probably, um, is a four words but not to a gestalt processor. It's the sound stream. It's a chunk. Sure. Well, and Marge, it, it sounds like you maybe listened to the the episode that, that sort of kicked off our, one of the reasons for listeners who are listening, who are listening to this, one of the reasons we all got together to talk about this is that Alexandria listened to our a previous Talking With Tech episode and said, I'm not sure what everything that Chris is saying is accurate, right? Um, maybe I don't get it. And so I'm trying to wrestle with what I don't get. I'm really uh, the, I'm a little selfish of me. This is all about me right now. And then a bunch of other people get to listen as well. Um, so you, I'm trying you, to- The morphine <laughs> part was good though. I like that part. Okay. So t tell me more. What do you, what do you mean about the morphine part? <laughs> well, we watch our gestalt processors Whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down. And, you know, those of us who think, oh, the word is the thing, you know, they go further than that. They get down to the morpheme. They do that. You know, and, and that all happens later. That's yeah, way later, later stage. stages. So we stopped talking at stage one. So we're like going all over the place now. But this morpheme thing doesn't happen till way later. <laughs> Um. <laughs> right. Well, I'm still, um, I'm still, I know, I understand that. And I think that, um, we can get there faster with intervention, right? That's part of what you're, you, you don't think you can <laughs> teach morphemes to a, to someone who's learning language this way? No, because you are going to skip over all the stages that we did not talk about. And because this is a developmental process, a child has to go through all of the stages. Otherwise, I call it this, people call it different things, but I call it Swiss cheese skills because you've got this isolated skill up here, but then all these holes down here and you're not helping build from the foundation up. 
you're jumping to the end of the staircase exactly. instead of taking the next stair next step up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so stage two, doesn't it? What? Which which re- leads us right to stage two. Before be- before we get in there, I have one question because I mm-hmm. feel like we're kind of framing this idea of analytical language processing versus gestalt language processing in the initial stages. So you know when we're thinking about gestalt language processing. What does that actually look like in our clinical practice? Is it a lot of jargon, a lot of unintelligible strings of sounds? Is it intonation? Like, what does that look like? Yes. I think, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, and we put jargon in in lots of quotes. Quote. Mm-hmm. But sorry, Alex. No, I, I definitely want you to jump in, but I was going to say, I think that's why so many people are confused. And I'm trying so hard lately, especially on my social media, to show clips of my different clients. Because stage one can look so different depending on the child. Um, it starts to look a little bit more the same as a child starts moving through the stages. But there's so many different ways stage one can look. And Rachel, you're absolutely right. It can look like quote unquote jargon. Why? Because that child, the gestalt processor, is an intonation baby. I think present, or maybe it was Peter's. Actually, it was way earlier than that. Wait, anyway, they called called them intonation babies. Why? They're focused on that intonation. Sounds like jargon to us because they're not separating out the words yet they're hearing that sound stream, like Marge is saying. So I have quite a few clips about that. The other thing is, um, you know, some kids are not motorically caught up. This might be a whole discussion for another time, but they're not motorically caught up to say those longer gestalts. And they're such bright kids and they wanna say this whole experience and this whole sound stream, like Marge said, but motorically at three years old, they're not there to produce all of that. And so it does come out sounding unintelligible or jargon like, cause our analytic two and three year olds are not trying to say 14 words. Well, I don't know about that, Alexandria. I mean, I had, I have kids just like that, meaning my own kids. And I can remember when I was a little kid singing songs and not really know what the meanings were. I currently today, I listen to Pearl Jam songs and I'm like, I have no idea what Eddie Vedder is singing. And I sing along with them just like a hundred percent, like, like just going with that intonation. And I don't, which makes me think that everybody's a little bit of both, right? That there isn't one or the other. Let's talk about that because that is so not true. Uh, Are there dual processors? Yes. But Marge, why don't you jump in and say when that ends for people? Because by the time a kid ends up in speech therapy, they're either gestalt or analytic. So what, if we go back um, and really, truly, we ought to do a whole segment on Ann Peters because her work is profound and she brought in all of these uh, qualitative researchers from those two decades that gave us our entire profession, our field. But anyway, to go back to what Alex is saying. So when a little one is, you know, one year old, two years old, even three, they have that, some of them, not everybody, but if they're very motorically able and I think Alex is that that piece is so very important because you've got to be mobile. If you're going to be a dual processor and you're going to gain from this big sound stream, and Ann Peters call it the frame, and then the slot, 
Like what word can you fill into that frame and mitigate it to use Barry Prezant's word. But if you're a little one and you're moving all over the house and people are paying attention to you and they're modeling the things that you could use and they're not worried about you and they think, oh no, I think he said a gestalt. Oh no, is he a gestalt processor? This is going back to you, Chris. You know, is that, you know, some people think that the only way you can use a gestalt is if you're a dominantly gestalt processor. And that's definitely not true when you're a little tiny kid, but not all little tiny kids can do that either. And, you know, if you are autistic, the chances are a lot greater that you're not going to do that. Not a hundred percent. I mean, it probably is true that 15% of gestalt kids could be completely analytic. They could be dual processors. Not Gestalt kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we rephrase that? It's yeah, so that, yeah. Say that again. So you said 15%, but then I think you used the wrong word. 15% of autistic kids might be analytic. It might be analytic or dual yeah. processors. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really it, small percentage. That's a pretty small percentage. Um, but it's definitely possible. And I think Alex and I are running into that all the time now because people are saying, I think my kid really is a dual processor, but he's autistic. Is that possible? And we'll say, sure, it is possible. It's not probably probable, you know, going back to what Barry Prasant said about the um, the percentage of autistic kids who in his vernacular are the extreme. That is the kids who are gestalt, gestalt, gestalt. And also as Alex is pointing out, once a child is past the age of three, it's really rare to find a dual processor. I mean, you know, they're starting to emerge little bits where you hear from like maybe one parent who says, I really think my child really can do, you know, the, the Ann Peters slot and frame thing. And I say, send me 50 videos tomorrow and let's look at that and save those because once we get back to the qualitative research, that really is going to show us the validity of some of these things that we've lost touch with because we don't do qualitative research anymore. You know, we all put kids in a big pile and say, what's going to make a difference? And then nothing does. And we say, oh, we need more NIH money. Anyway, that's another topic. But, you know, up, <laughs> you know, past the age of four, there is one child that we know of in this group, in the in the Facebook group, who appears to be still able to do this. And I, you know, anytime I see a child like that, I do, I ask for all the videos and for that person to save every little bit of information because we do need to look at them. But anyway, to go back to what you said, Chris, is that certainly when you're a little kid, you know, you have, and you're motorically able and you have no problem with processing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which means it's going to be a pretty small percentage of kids, which Alex is pointing out. It is possible. It's possible that they're both. Yeah. But but there's, so if you're only one, how do you know? Okay. So you mean, how do we as, as SLPs know that this child is an ALP versus a GLP? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, we need to look at why are they landing in our laps? Like, why are they in our caseload? Why did the parent call? Okay, so what is happening right there? Because I think there are 
hundreds of thousands of Gestalt language processors running around out there, but they don't need speech therapy. They are typically developing kids that are going through this developmental journey completely on their own. Like they just, maybe they're labeled as late talkers at some point because the parent heard a little jargon before they heard first words jargon. But anyway, they eventually get you know, let's say in preschool to that adult, like conversational language and no one thinks anything of it. And then when they're 20, the parents like, oh yeah, they were a little bit of a late talker. Okay. Um, but we really need to look at as speech therapists, who is landing on our caseload and why. And that's why I often tell people by the time a kid is on our caseload, they are one or the other. Um, now, are there some EI therapists out there that are like, hey, I have this two-year-old and I'm not sure? Yes. And we are kind of looking at those on a case-by-case basis. But again, why was EI called? Okay, something is going on there in their language development that made the parent call. So can I just ask a clarifying question here? So something that happens with all of my friends and my family and that pretty much everyone I know is we use stuff from movies, uh, a bunch of words put together or sounds that have one meaning. So for instance, um, I might say to, uh, to some friends, um, in my, in my, or my, my family is probably a better example. Like, um, uh, we're going to watch star Wars today. And I might go, this is the way. And I'm not thinking this is the way. It's just this experience we all had together of watching this and we say this script together. Or um, in my family, it might be like, uh, I've used this example. Uh, we're going to go out tonight, so we're going uh, Autobots roll out, right? It's just one phrase all together. Are you saying sort of, Alexandria, that it's possible that me and my kids we're all Gestalt language processes. No. Just grew up that way. Right? Nope. <laughs> okay. You're probably not. <laughs> Mark, okay. do you want to elaborate on that? Well, I am probably the most analytic person you're going to meet, and I do that all the time, Chris, because it's just it's it's like you take something that you say all the time, and I realize you know, how many of my expressions come from baseball? And I hadn't realized that until I started talking to people in other cultures who don't have baseball. I'm saying, well, you know that right off the bat, you know, and, but it, it was out in left field. So therefore, blah, blah, blah. So no, those are not gestalts. And um, it's something that we all think about because now the word gestalt has become so used, it's now becoming, let us just say, overused. And so, um, you know, we take our idioms and we take our little shortcut phrases and we take all the things that, you know, you say to your your partner or your best friend and you truncate it down to this little snippet and they know exactly what you mean, but nobody else on the planet would know what you meant. Yes, exactly, Marge. That's exactly it, right? It's this shared thing that Rachel probably wouldn't know. What what the heck my family and I are talking about, right? Okay, but you're saying that's not a gestalt. What's the difference? I feel like you've honed in on this like really tiny part of what a gestalt is. And maybe it's because of the types of kids that you've worked with. And I think a lot of us have worked with um, autistic kids that are like Rain Man or something like that, where we're hearing all these lines. 
and um, we call them scripts. And maybe that's where it came from, or maybe it's your own personal experiences, but that is just such a tiny piece of what a gestalt is. So try to remove your mind from like the whole scripting thing and think more about the intonation and it being tied to an emotional um, episodic memory. And that's closer to like what a gestalt is. And also we have to think about the fact that gestalts happen at stage one in a little kid's language development. And the definition is an unanalyzed whole. They're a little kid. They're one year old. They can't analyze it. And so we, we start to use the word gestalt as if it refers to every little chunk of language that we think is so cool. And we're going to just say it now forever and ever, ever more. It is not a gestalt. We have to think about what a little kid is going through and they can't analyze it. So, so uh, let me just try and make a distinction there, right? So like uh, a nursery rhyme, a little kid might say, repeat back, or you mentioned like a, maybe like a song lyric is sung back, but that's not a gestalt. Yes, it, it is. Can be. It can be if it's tied to their emotional experience and holds larger meaning. So like an analytic processor might sing, let it go. And I like, hey, they just love that song or it's they're into Elsa, right? But maybe for a Gestalt language processor, that to them means that time that I was in the movie theater and I got really scared next to my mom. And so now I say, let it go every time I'm freaked out. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Marge, I totally cut you off. And I no, 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 no. That's, that talk. was the best explanation. <laughs> that, that's the best. And that's the kind of thing that we need to remember as we go back and look at little kids is exactly that little kid in the movie theater where if you analyzed it, you might say, oh, it means X. But if you can't analyze it and it's part of an emotional experience, it's that. That is the meaning for that child at that time until they get to stage two. So, so you think they're sort of always remembering, if not the moment of, of, of acquisition, but the feeling they had when they had that moment of acquisition, yes. right? Where when I might be reciting a line, um, I, I, one my wife and I use all the time is from Christmas Vacation. So there's, um, why are the dishes out? I don't know, Margo. We just say that we're not really remembering the feeling we had when we first heard that and we made us laugh, right? It's just... It's just, uh, a, it's just yeah. a little bit that we have, but that's not, that's not a gestalt. No. And even if you remember, and even if you love that moment, and even if it was emotional, you're older than two years old. <laughs> right. But I'm always learning language, right? I'm always learning new bits and pieces that's of language. Right. So Which my language up, is. That's right. And that brings up the next point, And that is, if you were then to walk into um, the movie theater in, Paraguay and hear a language around you and you're trying to figure out what that means and it's an unanalyzed whole to you because you don't know the language, you're going to be thinking, wait a minute, it's dark in here. What are they doing? Why is that person saying it? What am I supposed to understand? So with second language learning, yes, then we enter that realm of gestalts again. And I'll add or ask a question. If I was, you know, trying to learn a phrase in a different language, 
myself as a, what I would assume to be an analytical language processor, I would be, Hey, can you say that for me? And can you break it down word by word so that I can learn how to say that phrase? Is that right? Exactly. So you do the gestalt first and then you break it down, which brings up stage two. <laughs> Let's go. Stage two. It took us a while to get there, but get us to stage two, like three times. I just want to tell anyone that's out there listening, though, if you want to see any of the examples of what stage one can look like, please check out my video reels on um, at Meaningful Speech on Instagram. It, that's the reason why I do them, because stage one can feel so confusing to people. <laughs> <laughs>